I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn to the book of Psalms. Psalms 14 is where we'll find our text today. Psalms, the 14th chapter. And in Psalms, the 14th chapter, verse number 1, the Word of God says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Would you notice that first phrase there in Psalm 14:1? The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that today the spirit of this message would be received. God, it is not our intention to dismantle anybody personally, but Lord, perhaps to, to disrupt their, their conclusions. Lord, there very well could be somebody here today that either denies your existence, very possible. There may be some here that do not know you exist. That is entirely possible as well. Lord, maybe there might be some here that are doubting your existence. Lord, I pray that by the end of this service, we would be sure. And Lord, that we would be equipped if there's no doubt. And uh, there's nothing... Lord, that is distracting us from, from that. Lord, I pray that we would be equipped to repeat what we hear today so that others may, may not doubt, so that others may not deny it altogether. There's a God in heaven who made everything, loves everybody, he wants everybody to have a relationship with him. God, help us today as we seek to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. It's not my intention through this message to dismantle anybody. This message will be not only heard in this place this morning on March the 31st, 2019. There's a good chance that this message may find its way to other places via recording. And I have no idea, we have no idea the extent to which this message may reach through that, through that medium. And so I want to say that it's not my intention to dismantle anybody, to disrespect anybody, or to make it seem like I, I, I'm not doing this from a heart of love, because I am. I'm doing it from a heart of love, because I love God primarily, and I love people, and I want people to know the God that I know. And so it's not my intention to dismantle anybody, and it's not my intention to equip you to dismantle anybody either. I'm not a good debater. I'm not a good debater. But I know this book. And I know what this book says, and I believe this book to be the Word of God. We'll cover more of that later. It's not my intention to dismantle anybody myself. It's not my intention to equip you to dismantle anybody. And may, uh, may we take the truths that we hear and repeat them to others, but may we repeat them in love. My intention this morning is to reason 
The same way that we find in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 where God said through the prophet Isaiah, come now and let us reason together. Or as we find in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul reasoned with the Thessalonian Jews and then the Greeks as well out of the scriptures. That's, that's my intention this morning to, to reason with the one that is said in their heart there is no God. And to equip you to reason with them as well. Because we don't teach and preach here at Liberty Lake Baptist Church to be heard. We teach and preach here at Liberty Lake Baptist Church to be repeated. That's one of the purposes of meeting together as a body of believers. That we might be equipped to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not in here. The work of the ministry is out there. And so I hope that you'll take good notes. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The 53rd Psalm is a repetition of the 14th. If you were to turn there and look, and you may, but if you were to turn there and look, you would find uh, that that Psalm in Psalm chapter 53 is a mirror image. Maybe that's a poor way to describe it because it, it, is, uh, it is just a repetition of Psalm 14. It says it a little bit different, but it's, it's still the same message that's being taught in that 53rd Psalm. For example, the first verse of Psalm 53, 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. And so in this, finding this same scripture in Psalm 14, and then again in Psalm chapter 53, we find that God is placing an emphasis on this by repeating that psalm. And I think it's an important thing for we as believers to remember that we need to place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. And in this case, he's done that by repeating this psalm, Psalm 14, and then also in Psalm 53. This message concerns the reality of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't I think you're aware of this, but let me just say it just in case there might be somebody who is not. But we live in a post-Christian era. We live in a biblically illiterate culture. And that is no slam or insult or condescension towards those that do not believe. They just haven't been told. They just haven't heard, perhaps, the message of the gospel. And so this message concerns the reality of, of God. Why does God's word call the person who says there is no God a fool? The word fool is a strong word. I don't know if you've ever been called a fool. I can remember one occasion which I was called a fool and it offended me. And rightly so. The word fool is a, is a strong word. It's so strong that Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, I believe it's verse 22 or 23, I think it's verse 22, Jesus uh, cautioned us against using that word. He said, don't call people a fool or you're going to stand in danger of the judgment yourself. And so I think that that tells us and teaches us that that word is a strong word. And so when God uses that word, uh, he is implying something with great strength and great authority. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Why does God's word call the person who says there is no God a fool? Now I'd like to cover three reasons 
why God calls them a fool. Number one, they are fools because they are empty and shallow in their thinking. Those that say there is no God are, are empty and shallow in their thinking. It's interesting to me because those who say, typically that say there is no God, are looked upon as those who are the deep thinkers, the philosophical minds. You think of it as, as, we, as we're introduced through different ways of people who say there is no God, uh, typically they tend to be the more, what are esteemed to be the intellectual types, right? Deep thinkers. When the truth is God calls them a fool because their thinking is actually empty and shallow. English philosopher Francis Bacon wrote in an essay on atheism, a little philosophy tendeth to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. Isn't that interesting? He said, a little philosophy tendeth to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. Now, we understand that religion is not the way to, way to God. Religion is not the way to God. Let me say that one more time, just in case you were wondering. Religion is not the way to God. God is the way to God. You say, well, that's not very deep. Well, that's because the Bible is very clear. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. God is the way to God. We understand that. God did not come to this earth to establish a religion. God came to this earth to restore a broken relationship between man and God. That's why God came, to restore that broken relationship. Here is the message. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Uh, this is the record. Uh, this has been given, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and this life is in his Son. There's a God in heaven that loves you. This is the message that we need to take to those who are lost. This is the reason why Christ came, why God came to this earth and shed his blood, died, was buried, and rose again, uh, and became the, the sin for all mankind that, he might be made the rights, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's a God in heaven that loves you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the problem is every man's a sinner. Every person is a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And on top of that, there's a payment that must be made for sin. The wages of sin is death. There's a payment to be made for sin. But the good news is Jesus made that payment for us. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our stead. He died in our place. He fulfilled the whole law. He fulfilled the law that we broke. He fulfilled the, uh, the boundary. Uh, he stayed within the boundaries that God had set, the boundaries that we transgressed in our sin and, and uh, how we raised our sin debt. He paid for those sins. He loved us in, in spite of ourselves and he paid for that sin debt for us and we can believe and receive Christ and, and be given eternal life and be saved. John 1, 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, receiving and believing. 
We receive the truth that God uh, sent Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. We receive the truth that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he is God's uh, provision, that he is the propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God, that his blood took care of the sin debt of every person that ever lived and that ever will live, you see. That's what he did. And we receive that and we believe that. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of, not of blood. We're not born into a Christian family. It doesn't matter uh, if your parents were Christians or your grandfather was a preacher. I don't know why that's such a big one as I tell people about Christ. They always tell me, I, they always tell me when I ask them, do you know for sure that if you died you go to heaven? Often I hear, well, my grandfather was a preacher, a Baptist preacher usually. Your grandfather being a Baptist preacher doesn't get you a golden ticket into heaven. He's not Willy Wonka. No, it's not by blood. Nor the will of the flesh, the Bible says. We can't work it up. We can't will it up in our own flesh. We can't say, well, if I just do enough good, uh, maybe my good will outweigh my bad. The Bible says, no, it's not that way. Nor the will of man. Mom and dad can't do it for me. They can't baptize me as an infant and will me by their flesh into heaven. They can't do it either. But by the will of God. Here's the will of God. That all men everywhere ought to be saved and that the will of God was that Jesus Christ would come and make that payment, blood payment for sin that he did. That's why Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Oh, Father, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me, but nevertheless not my, my will be done, but thy will. That's why Jesus submitted to the will. That was the will of God. And if we'll receive that, believe that and receive that, the Bible says we can become the children of God. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you've not yet chosen Christ. You've not yet uh, decided uh, that you wanted to believe in him, and you can do that today. You can do that right now in the quietness of your heart. You can, uh, you can just from the quietness of your heart, communicate to God. Say, God, I believe that Jesus Christ is my only hope of eternal salvation. And just like that, Jesus, God said, Jesus said, you'll be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In your heart, do it. Don't wait another day. You might not have another day. God came to this earth to restore a broken relationship between man and God. It'll be the only thing that fills that emptiness that you might be feeling in your heart. I'd like to mention to you another word. Of course, so far we've talked about, I think you may have drawn the conclusion that we're talking about atheism. Today, the man, the person that said in their heart, there is no God, right? That's what the atheist says. There's another word that's been concocted to remove the stigma of atheism, and it's called humanism. Humanism. Really what humanism says is, is this, simply put, this is the Cliff's Notes version, I am God. I am in control of my own destiny. That's what humanism is. Humanism is really a word that is used in place of atheism. Uh, humanism is a more inert academic word that, I, as I said before, neutralizes the stigma uh, of the word atheism. Humanism is introduced to us at a very early age, really all over the world, but certainly true in the United States of America. That is why the governmental school system, also known as the public school system, wants to enroll and indoctrinate children at younger and younger ages because they want to get them while they're fresh. While they can instill in them this idea of atheism or let's call it what they call it, humanism. 
Getting and indoctrinating children early is a clever tactic. This tactic has been employed by governmental propaganda systems for a long time. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 1, we'll actually see this as far back as the Babylonian Empire in Daniel chapter 1. And we'll read a few verses there just to illustrate this, this idea of propagandizing with humanism. The government, how governments want to do that. The Bible tells us in Daniel 1 verses 3 and 4. That the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, determined, here it is, verse 3, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel. Now look down at the end of verse number 4. Whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. There were three things. Look here. There were three things that the Babylonian government wanted to control in those children's lives. Number one, they wanted to control the children's education. We've just seen that in Daniel 1, verses 3 and 4. Number two, they wanted to control the children's diet. We see that in Daniel 1, 5. Number three, we, wanted to, we see that they wanted to control the children's faith. Now, I want to point out that the Jewish culture, that wasn't just where they went to church. That was their identity. And so they wanted to control the children's education, they wanted to control their diet, and they wanted to control their faith. Boy, that sounds reminiscent of a government that I know of. Now stay with me here. This is key to the message and key to what we're communicating this morning. You say, well, how is it that the government wanted to control the children's faith? I don't see that in Daniel 1.7, they just changed their names. But in changing the names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel, by the way, the government changed their names. Names that honored their faith in the one true God to names that honored the Babylonian gods. They wanted to change their faith. Changing a person's faith changes their identity and will use the control of diet and education to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you something that's happening in the United States of America right now. I hope that you'll get as stirred up about it as I am. I've been passionate about this for better than 26 years. My children, and I'm not bragging, please don't misunderstand me, but my children have never set foot into a public institution of learning, ever. I've made sacrifices. I've worked two and three jobs to pay for private school so that my children could be taught an education through the framework of biblical authority. Everything that a child learns, they, they, here's basically what it amounts to and why this applies to what I'm saying this morning, is because a child needs to be given all of the information. If they're going to be taught the theory of evolution, they ought to be taught that God created. We have nothing to fear if they have all the information. We have everything to fear if all they're taught is humanism and atheism. Because it's shallow and it's empty. It's restrictive. They claim themselves to be the ones with the open mind, but they're so narrow-minded that they will not even include the idea that God exists. And therefore, they're foolish. It's foolish. There's a blatant, vagrant, violent, and organized assault being waged against our faith and our children are the primary targets, our grandchildren as well. Socialistic governments, please hear what I'm saying because I've heard Christian young people, uninformed Christian young people, ignorant just because they haven't been taught, and so I'm teaching it to you this morning to be repeated in our nation. It needs this message right now. I hope that this message reaches far, far beyond what we could ever ask or think. Socialism 
and socialistic governments are built upon the persuasion and theory that there is no God. Now, there are going to be people that hear this, maybe even in this room right now, and they'll say, yeah, but socialist governments allow people to worship. For example, we find this to be true in China and in North Korea and in El Salvador. Uh, but here's the problem. The, those socialistic governments say, you may worship God, but it's got to be the God that we approve, that we sanction. And preacher, you've got to be registered with the state. And you can't talk about, uh, about uh, gay marriage. And you can't talk about, uh, about this thing and that thing. And see, that's what socialism does. Socialism affords people who they think are weak-minded uh, the ability to worship. And, but they, they say, you can't do it your way. You've got to do it our way. That's socialism. And I know Christian young people, I've heard them say out of their own mouths with my own ears, socialism, some of the ideas of socialism are okay. No, they're not. Because every one of them goes back to that, uh, to that persuasion and theory that there is no God. Look, even the ancient Greeks, they were pantheists. They did nothing unless they inquired at the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, how about the Romans? The ancient Roman never went to war until he had first uh, propitiated his gods. Until he had first offered something to his God. Socialism is the appetizer for the main dish, communism. Now, I know that people are going to hear this, perhaps will hear this, and they think, this guy is a conspiratorial nut. No, I'm not. I know this book, and I've lived just long enough to see it in my lifetime, you know? And I'm, I'm heralding the truth and I'm telling you that this is a dangerous thing. Socialism is built upon the thesis of a denial and existence of God. In this current culture, we almost constantly uh, are subjected to that idea. And you know what the problem is? Churches just like ours with good people just like ours, good God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians just like us, they begin to hear it through the news media. They begin to hear it through their ears. They see it on YouTube. They watch it on the news. They read it in the newspaper. They read it on the Internet. They read it in, in magazines. And we get bombarded with the idea, the social, these socialistic ideas that are, that, that are principled in the fact that there is no God. And we hear it and we see it and we read it and we're subjected to it. And Pretty soon we kind of become numb to it. And, and next thing you know, you've got people running for office and then you're scratching your head after they get elected going, how in the world did that lady get into office with those ideas? AOC. Because people like us fell asleep. And we did not do our job in going out there and saying, yeah, but here's the other, here's the rest of the story. Yes, I know what you've been taught in school, but let me teach you what God's Word says. And, and we might think it's a futile effort, but I'll, I'll get there in just a minute. I've got to find my place here. I'm sorry. That's why we must discuss and speak the reality of God and mankind's need to bow in the presence of the Almighty. Humanism, atheism is introduced at an early age, and it culminates in our governmental universities and colleges. Pray for Kim Lee, will you? She goes to the University of Idaho. I mentioned that to her before the service. I could just see in her countenance, she's like, yeah, I'm taking a class in philosophy right now. That young lady's a Christian young lady going to a governmental institution. 
She's going to get an education there, but we need to pray that God would protect her. She's at a formidable time in her life. Humanism is introduced at an early age, and it culminates in our governmental universities and colleges. It's disturbing to hear what some young adults think concerning the metaphysics of life that they've been exposed to by socialist, liberal, governmentally sanctioned indoctrinators. It's scary to hear what they have to say, what they think, because what they think is what they're saying. We've got young people, Christian young people, that are saying, hey, you know, these socialistic ideas, some of them are okay. I'm not against all of socialism. And somebody needs to be standing up and saying, wait a minute, you know where all that starts? You know, you know where all that begins? You're only getting half the story. That's why, they're, that's why they're thinking so shallow. That's why they think it's a good idea, because they haven't thought about more than about that deep about the whole situation. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. That's why the Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffeth up. <laughs> Little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A smattering of philosophy may lead, to a, uh, lead a person to doubt the real fundamentals of God. However, true depth in uh, true philosophical thought will lead to devotion, reverence, and faith in God. We don't have to be afraid. If they're getting all the information, let them, let them look at it. Let them look at the information. I'm so confident in this book, and I'm so confident in the truths of God's Word. I don't care whatever a, a, a young person looks at or, or studies. Read it. But as long as you filter it through this book right here, because this provides the other side of the story. And I know this, truth wins out. When somebody thinks beyond this far, when somebody is philosophical beyond three inches deep and they begin to bring in the rest of it, like Francis Bacon said, it doesn't lead them to atheism. It leads them to devotion and faith in God. I'm so confident in God's word. Give them all the information and let them choose. And we'll talk about more about how that all works or try to explain it in just a few moments. How long? You simple ones, will you love simplicity and scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Examples of people who had true depth and true philosophical thought and they were led to devotion, reverence, and faith in God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, he was a skeptic, an atheist, came to faith in Christ. because He thought it all the way through. He had all the information. He came to faith in Christ. Lee, uh, uh, Lou Wallace, man who wrote the, the great work Ben-Hur. He was a skeptic, an atheist. He came to faith in Christ through his study. Through looking at all the information, came to faith in Christ. Uh, by, a man by the name of Lee Strobel. He was a reporter for one of the most liberal rags in the entire nation, the Chicago Tribune. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ based on an article that he did for the Chicago Tribune. He came to faith in Christ because he went beyond that little, shallow, narrow-minded thinking and he had depth and true philosophical thought and it led him to devotion, reverence, and faith in God. All three of those men came to faith in Christ after that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the person who says there is no God is, is called a fool because of the shallowness of their thinking. You see what I mean? They limit God. They say, I'm only going to think this far because God's not in the equation. Number two, they're fools because they allocate themselves to themselves omniscience and infallibility. 
They are fools because they allocate to themselves omniscience and infallibility. A person must know all things and in all places at all times to be able to say there is no God. Do you know that? If they say there is no God, then that means they know everything. They've been every place at the same time. I don't know how to, how to say this any better than a, than a theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And so I'm just going to read straight out of a book that he wrote. This is what the theologian and author Thomas Chalmers wrote. The wonder turns on the great process by which a man could grow to the immense intelligence that can know there is no God. This intelligence involves the very attributes of deity, for unless this man is omnipresent, in some place where he is not, there may be a God. If he does not know absolutely every agent in the universe, the one that he does not know may be God. If he is not himself the chief agent in the universe and does not know what is so, that which is so may be God. If he is not in absolute possession of all the propositions that constitute universal truth, the one which he lacks may be that there is a God. If he cannot with certainty assign the cause of all that he perceives to exist, that cause may be God. If he does not, uh, if he does not know everything that has been in the immeasurable ages past, some things may have been done by a God. Thus, unless he knows all things, that is, precludes another deity by being one himself, he cannot know, that the, he cannot know the being whose existence he rejects does not exist. Unless a person has been, knows everything and has been every place at the same time, they cannot logically say there is no God without making themselves to be deity. They can't reject God by, unless they claim that they're God themselves. There is no such thing as an atheist because an atheist believes that they're God. They're humanist. There's no such thing as atheism. They might say, well, the agnostic, maybe they're a little better off and maybe there's a little better chance for them to be saved. No, the agnostic is shallow in their thinking as well because they get to a point and what the agnostic believes is, well, there is a God, but it is impossible to know what he is or who he is and it's impossible to know him personally. That's the agnostic. And that's where they stop. They go just about an inch deeper in their philosophical thinking and that's it. They're shallow. And they as well, they attribute to themselves, they're humanistic in their thinking as well. They believe that, uh, that they, are, they are in control of their own destiny. They believe that they're in control of whether or not uh, that, that God can know them and they can know God. They believe that, that uh, an agnostic believes that God's not even interested so therefore, God calls them fools because they're empty and shallow in their thinking and they allocate to themselves omniscience and infallibility. Thirdly, lastly, God calls them fools because they have a corrupt spiritual nature. Stay with me, please. That's the context of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. If we look at verse 3 of both of those psalms, if you're there, one or the other, it doesn't matter. I'm going to read from Psalm 14.3. It says, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. The whole context of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 is man's corrupt spiritual nature. That's why he says there is no God. He's a fool because of it. The corrupt spiritual nature is the reason why the existence of God, the reality of God, and the presence of God is never argued in the Bible. Do you know that? The reality of God, the presence of God, and the existence of God is never argued in the Bible. What does Genesis 1-1 say? Does it say, in the beginning there was a God? No, it doesn't say there was a God. In the beginning, God 
It makes an affirmation. It never argues the point. In the beginning, God, the fact of God's existence, is affirmed in the Bible. It is never argued. Dr. Peter Singer, a professor of bioethics currently at Princeton University, wrote the following in regard to 18th century English history. He said, the more the apologists tried to prove Christianity, the more it was not believed. Then he added, but the revival of Whitfield and Wesley, two great preachers, did more for religion than all of the apologists of all the centuries before. Do you know why? Do you know why that's true? Because Whitfield and Wesley were preachers, not apologists, not philosophers. You see? They were preachers. They were heralders of the truths of God's word. Whitfield and Wesley brought God's word. I'm certain as being men, they brought their ideas and they had ideas and they were free moral agents as well. But what they brought to people was the word of God. They used biblical language and they defined that biblical language in the Bible. They treated the scriptures like the lion that it is. They just turned it loose and let it defend itself. They didn't apologize for it. That's what apologetics is, by the way. Ladies and gentlemen, for the philosopher or an apologist to prove the existence of God is, is asinine. It's pointless. Philosophers and apologists seek to uh, so desperately to make the word of God and, and God relevant by using common language and concepts that the general population now doesn't even know the relevance of having God in their lives. That's the result of, of philosophers and apologists in the pulpits. We don't need more philosophers and apologists. We need some more preachers like Whitfield and Wesley. Amen. Come on now. You with me? And you are those preachers. God doesn't call everybody to stand behind a pulpit and herald the truth of God's word, but he calls every Christian to do it out there. And that's why I say, listen, what you hear and hear, go repeat it to the masses. Don't be a philosopher. Don't be an apologist. Be a preacher. Be a heralder of God's truth. That's all the word preacher means. A carrier of the light. Will you do that? Will you go tell a lost and dying, shallow thinking, uh, pres presumptuous generation that there's a God in heaven? Hey, wait a minute, there's more to this story that you need to know. And will you bring them the Bible instead of some vain philosophy and apologetics about the Bible? That's not what people need. When philosophers and apologists attempt to prove the existence of God, the fool's corrupt spiritual nature discounts the truth of God's word altogether. Case in point. Greek by the name of Homer wrote two classical works. You know what they are? Iliad and Odyssey, right? Do you know why he wrote those? He wrote those to disprove the Greek gods. And the general population, he was trying to show that general population of Greek people that those gods were false gods. Now, I don't know if he, if he had faith in Christ or came to faith in Christ or believed on the Messiah or anything like that. But the reason why he wrote those two classical works was to disprove the, and to point out the silliness of, of the whole Greek mythology thing. But what happened was, and he tried to use philosophy and apologetics to do it, and what happened in the Greek culture was that they decided, I guess we don't need a God at all. 
That's what happens when you bring apology and philosophy into the pulpit. We don't need it. We need, we need the Word of God. Because when you bring philosophy and apologetics, the corrupt nature in man just discounts God altogether. That's what happened with the Greeks. I hope you're getting this. The other side of that for us and how it applies to the believer is this. That corrupt nature inside of us lends to the belief that God is not capable through his word to do what his word says it will do. We think, well, if somebody doesn't believe that there's a God and they don't believe that the Bible is God's word, then there's no use in, in bringing God's word to them. Did you know that that's a lie? That's a lie. That's a devilish lie. Isaiah 55. Take your Bible. Turn there. I appreciate your indulgence this morning. I, it's such an important thing. We'll wrap this up quickly. Isaiah 55. Look at verse number 7, and we'll read down to verse number 11. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Isaiah 55. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Do you see what I'm saying? You see that corrupt spiritual nature in us and that those shallow philosophical thoughts and those apologies that we have, uh, that we make sometimes, leads us to believe that there's no use in bringing the Word of God to a person who doesn't believe that there is a God and does not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And that is a devilish lie because the Bible says that it will uh, accomplish that which God pleases and will prosper in the thing whereto He says sent it. They cannot deny it. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and as a hammer that, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Now just as sure as the heavens are higher than the earth, and just as sure as the rain and the snow fall down and not up, and just as sure as fire burns, and just as sure as the seed that's planted germinates, sprouts, sprouts, brings forth fruit of its own kind, and just as sure as the smallest hammer, as long as it's exerted and precisely and consistently applied to the same place can break the largest rock in the world so the word of God will prosper where it has been sent. Do you believe that? I do. I've watched this hammer break the rock. I've watched this fire burn deep into the souls of mankind. I've watched it change people's life and I've watched it change my own life did things in me that no philosophy or apologetic could ever do. When a man of God stands and heralds the truth of this book, it's effectual. It accomplishes a purpose. He might be dry as dust in his presentation, but the word of God is quick and powerful and sharp. Voltaire said Christianity will soon be a memory the Bible will be a forgotten book. hundred years after Voltaire died, 
British government bought a copy of the New Testament for $500,000 and put it in a British museum. And the same day you could buy a copy of Voltaire's works for three cents on the streets of London. Robert Ingersoll, the great agnostic, orator during the golden age of free thought. He died in 1899. You know what they turned his house into? A publishing company that printed Bibles. The book that he hated with a passion. That's what we're talking about. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And you might say, preacher, why do you get so excited about this stuff? Because I'm a preacher. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not an apologist. I know what they have to say, but I also know what this book has to say. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And this book helps me. This book helps me to think deep. It brings me past the shallowness of humanism and atheism and agnosticism and all the other isms and schisms that you pass by along the way. And when I know this book, it helps me think deep. I know the God they say does not exist. And I shudder for them. You know, in addition to God's word, he's... Witness of, is witness of himself in an unwritten way. You know how? Look at those clouds. The word of God and the world of God work in tandem. Romans 1 has something to say about that, but for sake of time, we can't go there this morning. Romans 1, 18 through 22, check it out sometime. There's an intuitive witness that every person has within them. You know that? Saved or unsaved, there's an intuitive witness. God is manifest in them, the Bible says. That's, that's the light that lights every man that comes into the world that John talked about. There's an intuitive inward witness. No matter what culture we would find this morning, across all of the ages, we could find that intuitive nature of mankind to think there is a God. There's, there's something greater. It's something, it's an authoritative thing, an intuitive inward witness that God's put in us. And, and then, we, then we have this thing that's clearly seen. We can't see that internal intuitive witness that says, uh, that says these things to us, that speaks to our hearts, even speaks to the unsaved person, and that consciousness that they have, uh, right and wrong, good and evil. And, and not only do we have that thing that's unseen, but we have this whole creation that is seen. And how could anybody in their right mind look at that and say, well, you know, that all just happened. Friend, that takes greater faith to believe that than it does to believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created I mean, you know what? Do you think for one moment that Apple or whoever it was, who makes Fitbit? I don't even care. Do you think they, do you think they took all the components for this thing, stuck it in a box and shook it up for a million years? Do you think in a million years that it could ever make this? What in the world makes us think that any of that or any of this could ever be made by chance? That's shallow thinking. That's, that doesn't make any sense. That allocates to oneself the deity. That if, if I'm God, boy, we're all in trouble, by the way. I'll just tell you that. I can't believe that. And if you're God, that's the same, the same truth goes for you as goes for me. If we're, if we're in control of our own destiny, man, we're in trouble. There's got to be more. 
Because there's this intuitive witness and this, this, this outward thing that we can't deny. Romans 1, 18 through 22 talks about all that. And, 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 and they, they become vain in their imaginations. That's how those verses end. They, they begin to imagine all these things. And, well, you know, there was an amoeba. And he was crawling around. He decided, I want to I go up on land. And so he grew some legs. And then he, you know, got sick of crawling around the ground. So he grew some arms. He climbed a tree. He had a tail to help him out that. We didn't, don't need our tail any longer. So we lost our tail. That's... Uh, evolution, you know, in a nutshell. And they become vain in their imaginations. And the Bible says their foolish heart gets darkened and it gets callous. And professing, the, here they are, professing themselves today in 2019, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They say we're the deep thinkers. They say we're the intellectuals. They say, you, you, okay, you need religion it's because you're weak. No, we need faith because we're strong and because we, we've thought beyond the shallowness of, of atheism and humanism and, and philosophy and, and apologetics. And we thought deeper than that. We found that, the, oh, there is a God. And it led us to devotion and it led us to faith in God and faith in Christ. They profess themselves to be wise. They became fools. That is why God's word calls them fools. They're empty and shallow in their thinking. They allocate to themselves omniscience and infallibility. They have a corrupt spiritual nature. Would you take your hymn books and turn to song number 326, please? 326. Now, obviously, this uh, message was more geared for those that may say in their heart there is no God, but but I want to remind us this morning, we have to be careful because we're constantly subject to all this. We're constantly subject to this thought and we're kind of getting used to the idea. And what happens to us, we don't deny God, but sometimes we doubt God. We begin to doubt God. We don't take God at his word. And that's the effect that it has on the believer. And we begin to look at God's word and we begin to handle God's word a little more lightly. And that's how this stuff kind of makes its way into our lives, into our Christian lives. We don't outright deny that there is a God, but let me tell you, the, the person that doubts God is a fool too. What God says in his word, he's going to do. When God says to do it, that's what, he, that's what he means for us to do. He intended for us to obey his word, and when we don't obey his word, all we're doing is expressing this idea that, there, that God's not here. God doesn't care about this. I know he said it in his word. And when we do something we think in secret, we do some secret little sin or we do some secret little thing or have some secret little thought, we think God doesn't see it. You know, we're, we're kind of like temporary atheists. Well, there's no God. I can go ahead and do this. I can go ahead and indulge this part of my flesh. I can go ahead and be angry. I can go ahead and be a glutton, you know. Not all of us are smokers and drinkers. I'm not. But you know, sometimes we look at those, what we think is our egregious sins, and we, we kind of look over, we look our, down our nose at those that say there is no God. And really, we do the same thing in areas and parts of our lives. Who are we? God tells us that there's something inside of us that speaks with authority. It's that intuitive voice that we talked about from Romans chapter 1. It's a moral consciousness that does not speak in abstract terms, but it speaks in specifics. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
That small voice inside of us, that small voice was there before I acknowledged Christ as my Savior. That's why it's so important for children to learn this so that, that they learn it before they become calloused and their heart becomes darkened and they no longer hear that still, small voice. But it's a voice that speak, doesn't speak in abstract terms. It speaks in specifics. It doesn't talk in the subjunctive tense. It doesn't say, uh, let us, let us. It's, it speaks to us in the imperative, thou shalt or thou shalt not. Do you know what the voice I'm talking about? Even now, perhaps the voice of God, that, that intuitive, internal thing is speaking to somebody's heart right now and through the preaching of God's Word or something that was mentioned. Maybe it was during the singing. That voice is, is speaking. What's He saying? What's He saying right now to you in your heart? What is He saying? Do you believe God's trying to communicate with us? I do. If not, the preaching of the Word of God is vain. This has been an exercise in futility, but I don't believe it has. I believe in the power of the Word of God to change lives. It changed my life, and I know it changed your lives. I've watched it change some of your lives. Unbelievable change. So during this invitation, here's what I would like for you to do. Somebody come. Somebody come. And if the need is there, believe and receive Christ. Man, woman, boy, girl, child, been in church all your life or not, but this morning, God has revealed to you through that intuitive little voice inside. You need to be saved. Would you come during the invitation? Somebody come. So maybe somebody come and put their life in this church. Just decide, I'm, I'm going to obey God. And that still small voice is inside you saying, D just do it. Just d d get it done. Maybe somebody would come for a cleansing, a renewal, refreshing. Well, doesn't it feel good to be able to come to the old-fashioned altar and just pour your heart out to God and say, God, I come this morning. May I, I, may, God, I've doubted you. I've doubted you in this area of my life. I know that, that, you're, that you've said this in your word, and I haven't been doing that. So maybe somebody would come this morning during this, during this invitation for that renewal and that refreshment. Just get right with God, you know. That still small voice is speaking in your heart right now. And somebody said, God, I've treated you as if you don't exist. Somebody might come this morning and say, I, everything's in order. My heart is at peace with God. That's very possible. I'm not discounting that fact. But you know, there is somebody here that might come and they might plead for the cause of those that say there is no God. Would you do that? There might be somebody get a burden in their heart for this young lady who's going to the University of Idaho that might just come. She doesn't even know it. And you come, God, protect her. Give her boldness. Help her to continue to trust in your word as she is subjected very evidently to this stuff in this governmental institution. Somebody individual, a husband, a wife, a family, husband and wife, come, would you? Let's give God this time as we stand and we sing on the first word, on the first note. Would you come, 326, standing as we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, 326, come now. Invitation's been given, appeal's been made, sing.